I mean, if our founding fathers had seen air conditioning or a cell phone, they probably would have thought it was like the devil at work. I mean, they were so far out of like their realm of understanding. They were incredibly brilliant people, but like this was a long time ago. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with Ben Sheehan. Ben is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die and the founder of OMG WTF, which brilliantly stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, which he created to teach voters about state executive races during the 2018 midterms. He has been named by The Hollywood Reporter as one of entertainment's 35 rising executives under 35, and in 2016, Ben helped register 50,000 voters through digital videos as the executive director of Save the Day. To this day, the projects he's been involved in have received over a billion views online. I'm having Ben on to talk about his book, OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say?, Ben has written a book that is essentially a modern-day breakdown of our founding documents that explains all the things you never properly learned in school in an easily digestible book filled with humor. When the book was published, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, I wish this book had existed 50 years ago when I moved to the United States. Ben's constitutional breakdown is a must-read for every current and aspiring citizen. Now, obviously, it would take more than one podcast to talk about the entire Constitution. So today, we're just going to be focusing on the first 12 amendments, which are the amendments that were ratified prior to the Civil War. And the first 10 are what we refer to as the Bill of Rights. Just to give you a little background, the Constitution of the United States was drafted in secret by delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787. And it was signed on September 17, 1787, in the assembly room of the Pennsylvania State House, known as Independence Hall. It is the oldest written national constitution still in use. But the constitution didn't go into effect the moment it was signed by the delegates. It needed to be approved by the people through the ratification process, where the majority of the 13 states would approve it. New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify in 1788. And now, having a majority, the Confederation Congress established March 4th, 1789 as the date to begin operation under the new Constitution. The framers of the Constitution included a provision where the document could be amended, meaning changed or added to, which was generally, but not always, a two-thirds majority of the House and Senate, followed by a ratification by state legislatures in three-quarters of the states. Since 1789, the Constitution has only been amended 27 times. Of those amendments, as we said, the first 10 are collectively known as the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, certified in 1791, was written by James Madison, who also wrote the first draft of the Constitution, known as the Virginia Plan, which included legislative, executive, and judicial branches and mapped out the checks and balances. In fact, Madison was so involved in the Constitutional Convention that people refer to him as the father of the Constitution. After the Constitution was written, Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton wrote the Federalist Papers to further defend the Constitution against criticism so they could form the basis of their new nation with as little doubt as possible. Madison wrote 29 of the 85 essays, John Jay wrote five, and as you probably know from the musical, Alexander Hamilton wrote the other 51. 
The ideas of the Bill of Rights came about before the Constitution was signed because some delegates still had concerns about the federal government's power and wanted more provisions than the original Constitution offered. So Madison wrote 19 amendments in exchange for those delegates' votes. Madison proposed those amendments to Congress on June 8, 1789. He called them the Great Rights of Mankind. The House liked 17 of the amendments, and they sent them to the Senate. The Senate liked 12 of those amendments, and they sent them to the states. The states ratified 10 of those amendments, and those 10 became the Bill of Rights. The 11th Amendment was ratified in 1795, and the 12th, June of 1804. The Constitution itself sets up how our government works. Article 1 is all about how bills become laws, how Congress works, what powers it has, what it can and cannot do, and what individual states can't do. Article 2 is all about the president. Article 3 is about the judiciary. Article 4 is about the rules of the states. Article 5 lays out how to amend the Constitution. Article 6 says you have to follow the rules of the Constitution, and it's the one that says we can't require a national religion. And Article 7 basically says, yay, we did it, and as soon as the nine state conventions ratify it, it will take effect. So again, although it was signed in 1787, it wasn't officially the law of the land until 1789, and the Bill of Rights wasn't ratified until 1791. So now that we're all on the same page, and without further ado, please welcome my guest, author of the brilliant and incredibly helpful book, OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? A Non-Boring Guide to How Our Democracy is Supposed to Work, Ben Sheehan. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan. I feel like I've been staring at you in your kitchen for like a year, and now we get to actually meet uh, sort of face-to-face. Woohoo! No, it's totally face-to-face. I'm so glad you're here. First of all, let me just say, I wish I wrote this book, right? It is exactly up my alley. It's just taking complicated, often unnecessarily dense ideas and making them understandable and, dare I say, enjoyable. It's a fantastic book, and I'm so grateful that you are here to talk to us about it. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So how'd you come up with the idea for this book? What made you want to write it? I grew up in Washington, D.C. and was surrounded by the government from a very early age. And I realized that I only got a half a year of civics education, I think, in eighth grade. I had parents who worked in and with the federal government and they gave me lessons over the dinner table. But I learned very little of this actually in school. And when I got older and in my professional career in entertainment, working at uh, Funny or Die, and I would try to find ways to like work in civics lessons to the videos that I was making. But it really wasn't until 2018 that it hit me uh, when I was doing events for uh, people running for state attorney general or state secretary of state. And it was hard to get my friends involved in any of these events because they didn't even know these positions existed. Whether or not they, regardless of who they wanted, to fill these positions, they didn't even know these jobs existed, despite the fact that they used their tax dollars uh, and their voting power to both hire and uh, pay these employees. So I was cleaning out my uh, apartment one day, and I found my eighth grade uh, pocket constitution from that half a year of government uh, education I got. And on a whim, I kind of I decided to just, just reread it. I, I, also, I'm the kind of nerdy person that kept their like reading materials from when they were 14. Dude, I have a pocket for... constitution right here. I totally have there it. I'm go. a nerd through it and comes through. Comes in handy. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't changed it since. TBD on what's going to happen. But um, I was looking through it, and I just struck me how unapproachable 
a lot of the language was. It's obviously important information that pertains to our everyday lives, but the it felt like reading it was a different language, and, and in a way it was. And so my goal was maybe to get people who may not understand how government works or be daunted by uh, the language or the way our constitution is written, um, if I can make this accessible and easy and make it like explaining it over drinks to a friend rather than like a, you know, a law professor making you feel stupid for not knowing it. So I, I decided to write this book, had it vetted by law professors on both sides of the ideological spectrum. And here it is. So you basically realized that we should all know something about something that was also deeply inaccessible. We have this 200 plus year old document using sentence structure and weird phrasing that most of us don't even understand. And you were like, we could do better because if we understand, then we can start to be like, maybe this should be changed. Maybe this should be changed. Maybe it's time for this. And it comes back to amendments, right? I mean, I gave a little primer on the constitution in the intro and I explained to everyone that we were just going to spend today talking about the first 12 amendments, the ones that were written pre-Civil War. But before we jump right into it, how would you define amendment so we're all on the same footing as we go in? An amendment is a change. It's something that we change in the Constitution. We add a uh, provision to it. And it's something that the people who wrote the Constitution really wanted us to do. Uh, they really wanted us to be able to change it. They devoted an entire article, uh, Article 5, to this process of changing it. And some of them actually wanted it to be changed pretty frequently. Thomas Jefferson thought that we should change the Constitution, not just amendments, the whole Constitution every 19 years. He said it was like having a coat that fit you as a child, expected to fit you as a, a grown-up. Uh, laws change, mores change, people change, and the Constitution should change with, uh, with our times. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense, actually, Thomas. There's a lot of things I disagree with him on, but I have to say it makes sense <laughs> to keep adjusting something because we don't fit into the things we used to keep fitting into. And it does seem crazy that we in the modern day should have to live under rules that were set in the 1700s. So the amendments are valid. And for all intents and purposes, they're just as much a part of the Constitution as the original document. And they're just as binding. Is that correct? That's correct. Great. Okay, so... Let's do this. The First Amendment of the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So this is your freedom of speech amendment, right? The one that allows us to petition the government and protest. The one that gives us freedom of religion and freedom of the press. And you've written in your book that the First Amendment essentially says you may express yourself freely without consequence. But what are some of the other things you think we should know about the First Amendment? Well, I think one is that it applies to Congress specifically. Right. It's saying mm -hmm. that Congress can't make any law. So the First Amendment comes up a lot in our everyday society, especially around social media. Right. When there are restrictions on what people can and can't post or tweet. And the truth is, is that these are private companies. These are platforms that are, are, are not part of the government. They are private businesses. They can make their own rules for the kind of things that can be discussed on their platforms. So the First Amendment doesn't apply to them anywhere nearly as much in the same way as it explicitly applies to Congress. Right. People are always saying that. They're like, I should be able to say whatever I want on Twitter. It's free speech. You're like, nope, that doesn't apply to a private company. It's like if you walk into a, a restaurant and start shouting at people and knocking over tables and rounding around yelling things like the restaurant can kick you out. It's a private company. They don't have to sit there and let you express yourself uh, freely and um, annoyingly for the patrons that are eating at that establishment. 
Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court has already decided the amendment doesn't shield us from things like inciting violence in harmful situations. It doesn't shield us from slander, which is defamatory speech. It doesn't shield us from libel, which is defamatory writing. It doesn't shield us from obscenities, which you point out is slightly vague. But it doesn't shield us from child pornography, which is very specific. It doesn't shield us from false advertising or intellectual property violations like copyright or trademarks or patterns like that. That That is not included in the protections of the First Amendment. Right. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, rights can have caveats. You, you can't deny yeah. people's right to express themselves, but you can put a little bit of regulation on it to make it make sense for the modern world. Because having the unfettered, as I explained earlier, and we've discussed, like having the unfettered act to just express yourself, you can harm other people very, very palpably. So it's really important to have, you know, that it's almost like regulate versus infringe sometimes get lumped together, but they're really different things. One is like preventing something from happening. The other is adding a little bit of guardrail. Right. And the amendment applies, as you said, specifically to Congress, which was expanded later in the 14th Amendment to include state legislators. So it's what the government can regulate. Exactly. All right. So the Second Amendment, which we hear about all the time, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Obviously, this is the guns one, and this is the one that causes us endless heartache in America. And most people leave out the first part about a well-regulated militia, and they get right to the part about the right of the people to keep and bear arms not being infringed. So why don't you talk me through this one? So for over 200 years, this amendment was understood pretty clearly to apply to militias. In fact, there have been very few Supreme Court cases in our history that have dealt specifically with the Second Amendment. But half, if not more, of those cases have been since 2008. Since 2008, we have drastically, or I should say the Supreme Court has drastically expanded the understanding of what the Second Amendment is. Before 2008, it was understood that the amendment is in some way connected to militia service or eligibility, because um, it clearly says in the beginning of the amendment, a well-regulated militia. The purpose of this amendment is to have supplemental forces in case the United States needs more people to add to the army and call up to serve. At the beginning of the country in 1791, this amendment was ratified, we didn't have a gigantic army. There weren't nearly as many people as we have now. We needed reserves. Um, and Congress has since established the National Guard and, and reserves as basically the, the um, official militia of the United States. So this was for a very long time understood to be connected to that. However, a big severance happened in 2008 with the uh, Supreme Court case, District of Columbia versus Heller, where for the first time, the Supreme Court explicitly said that we all have the right to have a, in this case, a handgun in the home for self-defense, completely unconnected to our eligibility for a militia, our being in a militia, our wanting to be in a militia. Um, and it drastically expanded it. And then Supreme Court cases since have expanded that to the state level. Uh, they've expanded it to all types of bearable arms, not just handguns. And they've expanded it most recently outside the home, being able to have a handgun outside the home, traveling for the purpose of self-defense. So in the last 14, 15 years, uh, we've expanded the Second Amendment far more than we did in the first 200 plus years. Which means that our gun crisis is not just a strategically American problem. Our gun crisis is a modern American problem. It is something we have literally done to ourselves since, like you said, 2008. There have only been 
six, I think you said, Supreme Court decisions directly affecting the Second Amendment since Seven now with the new one, yeah, but yes. Yeah, and, and then half of them, more than half of them now have been since 2008. So this is a modern problem we have brought on ourselves in many ways. I, I would just say that, you know, again, it's the same thing with the First Amendment is that you don't see people out in the streets you know, screaming that, you know, having a libel law is uh, infringing on their First Amendment right or having laws against copyright violations are infringing on their First Amendment light, rights. But any sort of common sense and I should say widely supported regulation across the political spectrum among voters gets this reaction. Um, and I think it's very odd that, you know, there is this huge, I mean, I don't think it's odd. I understand why it's happening, but I think it's interesting when you compare uh, the people are fine with having regulations, reasonable regulations on the First Amendment, but any sort of regulation on the Second Amendment leads to this massive uh, uprising outcry. Yeah, it's unbearable to people. Like it's the Second Amendment is probably the most debated amendment today. People have been passing around recently former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court Warren Burger's comments on it, which he was basically saying that the Second Amendment has been deliberately misinterpreted, that the right wing of the Supreme Court continues to perpetuate this, what he calls great fraud on the American public, because the framers clearly intended to secure the right to bear arms essentially for military purposes, that it was never supposed to have anything to do with individual gun rights. And we have completely turned that on its end, and it has caused us endless problems. And I think that in the same way that there was a long, you know, almost 50 year uh, plan to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, there was similarly a decades long process to try to reframe the understanding of the Second Amendment. I mean, you could trace this back uh, to the late 60s, early 70s, when the NRA went from sort of a hobbyist organization, they call it the revolt at Cincinnati, when almost overnight, it became this gun activist uh, pro-gun organization. Uh, and decades later, they worked all of this time to reframe people's understanding of the Second Amendment to expand uh, the understanding far more than, in my opinion, and the opinion of people like Justice Berger and others uh, is far more expansive than originally intended. Yeah. And you've taken the time in the book to kind of honestly attempt to interpret this amendment, to really break it down, you know, from free state, meaning free country, not free individual states, to what infringed actually means. And you believe that if someone joins the National Guard or meets the basic requirements, the Constitution absolutely protects their right to own weapons and ammunition, that the government can't stand in the way of that. But you don't believe it applies to regular people. And you and Justice Berger and me, I would all agree with that. And yet, over the years, we've let the Supreme Court kind of turn it over and over again until we don't even know what it stands for. And I think it's something we really should be looking at. We should be looking at that amendment again. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the third. The third says, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Do you want to interpret that for us? <laughs> This is the you can't have a forced roommate amendment. Um, basically, <laughs> at the you know during the Revolutionary War, you had uh, English soldiers forcing themselves into people's homes and eating their food and sleeping in their rooms, and uh, people didn't want that. They didn't really like it. So we passed this amendment saying that soldiers can't do this unless we are currently at war and Congress passes a law and says, okay, we actually do need some soldiers to be lodged in this uh, in this room. Uh, obviously, again amendments that were ratified in 1791 things have changed so this hasn't really been a very relevant amendment uh since then but it is it is nice to know that we can't have forced roommates yeah 
basically the framers were like, we don't love it that King George makes us colonists host soldiers, and we're just going to write down a rule that makes it so no one can ever do that again. There you go. All right. The Fourth Amendment says the rights of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So basically, the government can't search or steal our stuff without reason. Basically, they can't randomly uh, detain you without probably ca- probable cause. They have to have some sort of indication that you are about to commit a crime, that you have committed a crime uh, in order to detain you, uh, to get a warrant to search your things. This includes both you on your person. This includes where, where you live, where you work, your, your place of residence. So um, it protects our personhood, our livelihood from random government interference, searching and seizure. Yeah, and warrants can for searches and seizures can only be issued if there is what they call probable cause, which is a reason to suspect criminal activity. And in those cases, you have to provide evidence under oath or what they call affirmation to receive a warrant. And the warrant has to describe the specific place or places that need to be searched and the people or objects that can or cannot be seized. So basically, what happened at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump, the FBI couldn't just burst into his house and search everything without a warrant and probable cause. They had to prove to a judge with evidence that he was withholding top secret documents and this was the only way to get them. This is also the amendment that prevents illegally obtained evidence from being used in court. Is that right? Yes, you can't obtain evidence illegally and then use that at a later date, basically. And there, look, there have been modern examples where this has been been discussed and, and potentially violated. You know, the, the stop and frisk laws that were happening in, in yeah. New York City, you know, in, in my opinion and the opinion of, of judges as well, was that it was a violation of this of this amendment. I mean, this is incredibly important. If, the, if this amendment didn't exist, people could be detained at any time. Their things could be taken without any real evidence to do so. It would be anarchy. Yeah. You also point out in the book that when we are undergoing searches of our person at airports or at courthouses, that's actually questionable um, to the Fourth Amendment. Teachers and administrators at schools going through kids' lockers or going on their persons or going through their bags to look for drugs, that's actually a little questionable when it comes to the Fourth Amendment. It is, but it's also, you know, it's also an example of, you know, again, regulations, you know, making sure that people don't have weapons on them to harm others when they're on a plane, I think are reasonable regulations. They're not infringements. They're not preventing uh, uh, anything, but they're making things safer. It's the guardrails rather than the the infringement. Again, same with the the laws that have regulated uh, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and and plenty of other amendments. I mean, you say in the book that Madison was thinking about things like physical searches and seizures, but he wouldn't have considered things like blood tests or data privacy, right? So this is kind of the example where we start thinking that science and technology have evolved beyond the person who wrote the amendments could have ever possibly grasped. Like this amendment probably needs an amendment, one that speaks to our modern world. I mean, quite frankly, the second amendment needs an amendment that speaks to our modern world because there's no way Madison was considering automatic rifles either when he wrote that. 
I mean, if our founding fathers had seen air conditioning or a cell phone, they probably would have thought it was like the devil at work. I mean, they were so far out of like their realm of understanding. They, they were incredibly brilliant people, but like this was a long time ago. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, I probably wouldn't have expected to have literally all information ever created in society in the palm of my hand, but here we are. So um, yes, there are definitely laws that need to be updated to protect our privacy uh, in the digital age. And I think our Congress... Uh, across the board is behind the times of that. I think anyone who watched the TikTok hearings, uh, you know, some of the questions that have been asked there, also the ones that were asked of Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and other tech founders, like clearly the people who are studying this and tasked with keeping us safe are not as literate on the issue as they should be. And if anything, it's an argument for newer members of our legislature, not just at the federal level, but across the country are needed. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All right, let's move to the Fifth Amendment. It's a long one, okay? So stick with me here. It reads, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, this is a big one. It's your right to a fair trial amendment, right? And this is your fifth amendment when you take the fifth. So talk me through it. Sure. So I think one thing that obviously has come up recently is, you know, people are discovering what a grand jury is uh, with what's <laughs> happening in New York. Now, obviously, this is the that this is a state case, not a not a federal case. But at the federal level, we have a right to have to be c- indicted by a grand jury. And these are our peers. These are people among us. This isn't a king who's coming in and saying, you're uh, indicted of this crime, you have to go to trial. These are people who live among us. These are our friends, our neighbors, our fellow citizens. So I think it's really revolutionary when you look back that they gave people, other people, the power to judge fellow people and not have it be some sort of totalitarian thing where you're locked up and thrown in jail and you don't have any any rights at all. In fact, the Constitution, not just in this amendment, but all throughout, there are so many protections against this type of thing. You can't, uh, you know, bills of attainder aren't allowed, being able to lock somebody up and punish them without a, uh, without a trial. You know, suspending habeas corpus, which is the ability to like demand to know why you were detained and go appear before a judge. So this is one of those amendments that is really revolutionary, in my opinion, for protecting individuals who are uh, accused of crimes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like I said, this is the one where you can plead the fifth and not incriminate yourself in court. But this is also the one with double jeopardy, where you can't be tried twice for the same crime. This is the amendment that says if you're being tried for a capital crime, meaning the death penalty is possible, or for another serious crime, you have the right to an indictment, which, as you were saying, is a formal accusation by a grand jury of between, just so people know, 16 to 23 U.S. citizens, a jury of your peers, or a trial jury that has between 6 to 12 U.S. citizens. It basically just says you can't be deprived of your life, freedom, belongings, without due process of the law. And you can't have your property taken without someone paying for it. Well, well, that last part is very interesting, where it's the government, it? basically. It, it is, a, And they kind of threw it in this amendment where it's like, you have a bunch of rights. You can't be accused of the same thing twice. You have to, if you're going to be accused of a, a serious crime, a grand jury has to indict you before it goes to trial, all these things. But then they're like, by the way, if the government wants your stuff, they'll, they'll pay you a fair rate. 
what? <laughs> like where? It, it seems very shoehorned in. Um, but it's called eminent domain, and it really uh, is intended to apply to say if you live near the border or you live near uh, a, a place where you know there has to be some sort of government infrastructure put up. The idea is like the government will buy the land at a fair rate from you in order to use it for a public purpose. The keyword being public purpose. So it it is it is kind of a, a strange thing addition to the amendment, um, and there is room for it to go wrong, but um, it, it is something that everyone should be keeping an eye on, especially if you live near uh, a border or a place where a railroad might end up being built. Yeah, or some sort of waterway. I mean, the whole build the wall thing would have had to use a lot of eminent domain, taking people's property from them in order to do that, right? Yes. And then the only other thing I would say about this amendment that we should probably note is that exceptions are made in this amendment for the military who have their own legal system. Mm-hmm. Um but essentially, this is the one that promises us due process and fair legal proceedings. Yes. At the federal level, yes. So the Sixth Amendment reads, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime has been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So the Sixth Amendment is the right to a fair and speedy trial in criminal cases and the right to an attorney. Is that correct? Yeah. It, you know, and what's interesting about the Sixth Amendment is this is the first time in the Bill of Rights. Until this point, we've been talking about negative rights. Congress shall make no law, shall not be infringed. You can't have soldiers enter your home. You can't uh, search people without. So it's a lot of you can't do something. This is the first time in the Bill of Rights where we're saying you get affirmative rights. You get a right to a speedy trial. You get a lawyer. You can compel people to uh, testify on your behalf. So again, kind of building on the Fifth Amendment and and the Fourth Amendment to some extent, these are protections against people who have been who have been uh, accused of crimes, suspected of crimes. This is again revolutionary in the protections that are enumerated in the Constitution for people as they're going through the legal process. Like you have to be informed of the nature of the accusation against you. You have the right to confront the witnesses testifying against you like they have to face you in court. You also can force witnesses to testify for you and you get to have a defense lawyer. And if you can't afford a defense lawyer, the court will appoint one for you and our tax dollars will pay for it. That is a right we are giving you. Um, I think that's pretty fascinating. I also think this idea of a speedy trial, you point out in the book, and I think it's important to note that trials can actually take years because of delays. But for public trials, when they say public trials, it really does mean they're open to the public, meaning spectators or the media can be there to watch it happen, um, to make sure we aren't doing sketchy things in the sidelines or in the dark. Unless it's a matter of national security or there's some public safety concern, our trials are supposed to be open to the public. And going back to what you said about jury duty, this is the amendment that makes us all have to do jury duty, right? And and I think that people, most people think jury duty is incredibly annoying. And I know that I do because I have it next week. <laughs> um, but as you point out in the book, it's actually pretty incredible that they wrote in that a group of random and hopefully impartial citizens are able to determine the guilt of a person because it's one of the most truly powerful roles citizens play in our society. And this was written in, as you said, and ratified in 1791. Like this is, they were thinking that far ahead. 
It's really incredible because, you know, when you're talking about, again, a grand jury, the people who decide if you are formally charged of a crime, that is a group of your peers. To people who decide whether or not you are guilty are a group of your peers. This is giving people, you know, we think of democracy, we almost always associate it with voting, right? But really it is demo, meaning a government ultimately run by the people. Here in the legal process, you have people deciding if you're going to be charged with a crime and go to trial. You have people deciding if you're guilty or not. That's an incredible amount of power. And it gets lost in us having to, you know, uh, take a day off of work and go down and sit in a room and wait. And obviously there's some very unsexy parts of jury uh, duty, but the actual uh, the actual act of it is incredibly powerful. The fact that over 200 years ago, people designing our government gave us this power. They gave it to us, yeah. not a king, not some sort of authority, uh, single authority figure. They gave it to fellow citizens, fellow peers, people who were from the state and the district where the crime occurred. So it's people that, you know, the, uh, the idea being it's people you know, people who, 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 who know the nature of the crime, who are familiar with the area. Um, and that, I think, is a really revolutionary, powerful thing. Yeah, and that's what's been forgotten right now with all the shenanigans around Donald Trump's indictment, that it wasn't the Democrats who indicted him. It wasn't um, the DA who indicted him. It wasn't you know Joe Biden who indicted him. It was 23 members of his peers from New York who saw the evidence and heard the testimonies and decided that he deserved an indictment. And that is how it was supposed to be. That is actual justice. So everyone that's saying it's not justice, it actually is. He's had every single one of his rights that are his constitutional rights, things that are in the Bill of Rights, all been appreciated all the way along, including um, being able to plead the fifth over 400 times in his own, to not to incriminate himself. He's had all of those rights. Yeah, and it, it gets lost in the sense that it's like people thinking that a DA can come in and it's all, like they can present the evidence, they can make their best case, but at the end of the day, it is the grand jury that decides whether or not to indict this person. End of story. Yeah. Since we're talking about a document that was written in the late 1700s, I think it's rather fitting that today's sponsor wants to help us with germs. Did you know that traditional bedsheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? How repulsive is that? That's why your bed can give you acne and allergies and stuffy noses. It's gross. And this is why Miracle made a whole line of self-cleaning eco-friendly bedding such as sheets, pillowcases and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria. Miracle-Made sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Plus, Miracle sheets are incredibly comfortable and feel as nice, if not nicer, than some of the bed sheets used by five-star hotels. So stop sleeping on bacteria and try Miracle-Made sheets today by going to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Mother's Day and Father's Day are right around the corner. This is a perfect way to give someone you love the gift of a better, more luxurious sleep. Use the promo code POLITICSGIRL at checkout, and not only will you save over 40%, you'll get three free towels with your purchase. A miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a free refund. No muss, no fuss. So go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three-piece towel set. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself and get 40% off. Today's pod is also brought to you by Green Chef. We cooked Green Chef last night and I was so happy to have it because my husband and I are so overworked. And by the time we got to dinner, I was like, Ugh, I don't know what the hell we're gonna have. And then I was like, oh yeah, we've got Green Chef. Here's the thing, 
If you eat a specific way, like keto, protein-packed, vegan, vegetarian, low-fat, Mediterranean, gluten-free, whatever, they have meals for you, tailored specifically to your type of dietary requirement. But if you are just like me and want simple meals you don't have to think about, then you have that too. So last night we ended up having truffle butter steaks with potato wedges and Parmesan roasted broccoli. It was delicious and it was easy. And I knew that we were eating certified organic high quality food. With Green Chef, you can choose from over 30 weekly recipes with the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box. So you can have vegan one day and keto the next. They also have something called the Green Market, which is a one-stop shop for a quick breakfast, brunch kit, wholesome lunches, so you can add more to your weekly order and make it easier on yourself. If you'd like to give it a try, go to greenchef.com politicsgirl60 and use the code politicsgirl60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com politicsgirl60 and use the code politicsgirl60. There's a reason Green Chef is called the number one meal kit for eating well. Find out for yourself today. Finally, on a cold night in 2010, a boy is stopped by the police while walking home from a party in the Bronx. He's only 16. He's been stopped by the police before, but this time is different. In a special four-part series, the Generation Y podcast unravels the story of Khalif Browder, a young boy who was falsely accused of stealing a backpack and held without bail at Rikers Island for three years. He endured regular abuse by prison staff and inmates and was held in solitary confinement for more than 700 consecutive days. Three years later, Khalif was released, never having stood trial. This is a story that digs into the injustice of the justice system and a young life caught in the middle. We say innocent until proven guilty, but where do we draw the line between due process and cruelty? To hear this four-part series, follow Generation Y wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music or the Wondery app. And now back to those amendments. And the Seventh Amendment is a lot like the Sixth. It says, in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court in the United States than according to the rule of the common law. So basically, this is you get a fair legal trial in civil cases as well. That's right. And I will just say as a caveat, the $20 has been uh, raised by, by Congress. It's now, it's now $75,000. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are ways that you could find like loopholes where you could probably bring a federal case for uh, $20. But long story short, Congress has, in most cases, updated this to be a $75,000 uh, minimum. But again, it's juries for civil cases, too. So you're being judged by a group of your peers, people who are from the state and district where the crime occurred. Um, this is, again, revolutionary at, at every level. I mean, this is just so people know, a civil case is an offense against a private party, like a workplace discrimination case or breach of contract or property damage. That is what a civil case is. It's different than a criminal case. And they also write in this one that a civil case can't be retried in the same uh, way or for the same crime over and over again. It's sort of like the double jeopardy law from the criminal case. Right. All right, let's move on to the Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Now, I really want to talk about this one because it feels like this is one that really needs updating or at least following in our modern world. Yes. You know, we are uh, um, in very um, 
odd company with countries like uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran and China and Vietnam, Iraq, as as one of the countries that still executes people um, for crimes. In fact, we as of a couple of years ago, we were in the top 10 uh, countries for uh, capital executions. And it's only us in the Philippines that have a, a, a legal for-profit uh, bail bond system. So, you know, in terms of the Constitution being like progressive, I think, uh, before this amendment, when it comes to uh, protecting people who are accused of crimes and defendants, uh, starts to get a little regressive here. Also, it's the shortest amendment so far in the Bill of Rights. And so that vagueness uh, has allowed it to be interpreted a number of different ways. I mean, this one seems like a big one to me because I really do think we have major problems with bail. I mean, People can't afford their bail. It's excessive to them. And they say it can't be excessive. It would be excessive to them. So then they end up rotting in prison waiting for trial for a small crime where rich people can get out and go on and live their lives. And you point out in the book that, you know, we have multiple types of bail. Cash bail is one type of bail um, where you use money as collateral. But you argue, and I think rightly so, that that feels a bit unconstitutional because if you're a danger to society or a flight risk, you should have to wait in jail or under house arrest to protect society from you. But if you aren't any of those things, then why do you only get released if you have enough money, but you stay in jail if you don't? Because you point out that nowhere else in the Bill of Rights, including this amendment, does it say that rights only apply to you if you are wealthy enough. And that's right. what's happening with this one. That is what's happening with this one. And I will also add that, you know, while you are in jail waiting for trial, if you can't afford bail, you can have other rights, um, you know, denied to you as a result. This is something that was uh, has been discussed recently is, you know, people who are in- incarcerated in 48 states uh, lose their voting rights uh, while they're incarcerated and then they get them back either after they've completed their sentence or they've completed a uh, parole or probation. There are only two states in the United States, Maine and Vermont uh, and Washington, D.C., where even if you are sitting in, in prison, if you're incarcerated, you still maintain your voting rights. But what if you are in jail and you haven't been you know, in trial and you, you've just been arrested and you're waiting for your trial to start? There aren't people necessarily working at the jail, working for the state who are making sure you are able to maintain those rights. So it's kind of a quiet denial of those rights where if you're sitting there, you haven't lost your rights because you've been convicted of anything, but you still aren't you know, given necessarily the ability to register to vote or exercise any of your other democratic rights. So it's, it's, it's something that is, is long outdated and there's a lot of room for it to go haywire. I mean, you make the point in the book that there's entire third party industries who benefit from this, who traffic in cash bail. And like the Philippines, you said, we're We're the only ones that have a legal bail bond industry. And just so people know, if you don't know anything about the bail bond industry, it's a $2 billion a year industry, but it actually costs the U.S. taxpayer about $15 billion a year to keep people who haven't been convicted of anything in jail awaiting trial. So American taxpayers are paying $15 billion a year, and we are holding up the bail bondsman industry who are making $2 billion a year to kind of hold up a debatably unethical and potentially unconstitutional situation. And I think you rightly make the argument against cash bail and the industry that is built on top of it based on this amendment alone. I, I think you you mentioned this at the at, at the top is that quite simply, you shouldn't be able to get some rights just because you're rich. Yeah. And then it goes back to this cruel and unusual punishment, which you were talking about, the fact that we're one of the only countries that still has uh, us executing people. And you would say it's 
you know, the questioning if cruel and unusual is the death penalty. I would say it would fall right into the death penalty. But it also seems like cruel and unusual is the amount of people who are beaten in jail or starved or pushed downstairs in prison as they're awaiting their trial or people that don't even make it to prison these days because they're gunned down in their cars or on the street or running away from the police. It's like, in many ways, to me, it says my little reading this amendment, it felt like America's kind of abandoned the Eighth Amendment a little bit. Well, I think, you know, this goes back to the heart of of federalism, right? Because a lot of the things you're describing are happening in, you know, county jails are happening at the county level. I mean, the whole, there's a whole criminal system that's separate from the federal government. That's, you know, the state criminal system. And so people who are sitting there accused of, um, state crimes, um, you know, they're sitting at a county jail there. It's, it's run by the sheriff's department. Um, and there is a lack of oversight for stuff like that. And I think a lot of us are honestly naive or haven't been aware of exactly what's been going on, despite many people blowing the whistle on this. So this is, this is something, you know, criminal, we're not going to be able to solve criminal justice reform in on this podcast, but this is something that people should be paying attention <laughs> to. And I will, and I will say that, you know, a lot of the people who oversee this, these, this justice system, you do directly elect. In, in almost every situation, you directly elect your sheriff. You directly elect judges uh, who are a part of the you know state and, and, and county judges. So it's sort of the things that we see further down the ballot or like, mm, I don't know about this or exactly what this does. DA is another example, the perf people who uh, you know uh, uh, prosecute. So you do actually have a pretty direct hand in picking the people who are involved uh, with things like this. Yeah, absolutely. We always say make sure you know who you're voting for all the way down the ballot because all these rules really affect um, our rights right across the board. Um, So let's get to the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. (laughs) What? (laughs) This one is like, what? I got to be honest with you. I think this is my favorite part of the Constitution. And I'll tell you, I'll tell, I'll explain, I'll explain why. Because uh, James Madison, I should also uh, add this, James Madison wrote all the entire Bill of Rights. He had the foresight to say that if we are enumerating, listing out certain rights, I, I don't want it to imply that these are your only rights. There may be things that we forgot. Just as we gave you the ability to amend the Constitution and change it, we shouldn't make it seem like the only rights you have are the ones that are explicitly listed in here. So the rights that you do that you do have in here can't be used to deny other ones that we forgot. And while, you know, I'll give Roe v. Wade uh, as, a, as a quick example, right? So that was really based on the 14th uh, Amendment and the right to privacy that falls under the word liberty. Um, but... One of the justices who concurred said there actually might be a stronger argument in the ninth that what's in the Constitution can't be used to to deny other rights retained by the people. Uh, Right to get an abortion, have abortion rights could be one of those. One example that the Supreme Court has acknowledged is the right to travel, to be able to travel to another country and come back. That's not something explicitly in the Constitution, but we can't use what's in the Constitution to deny uh, that right to travel about. Yeah, I think they've also added like privacy, personal health decisions. They've put that all into the Ninth Amendment too, right? I mean, this basically is, I love this one now that you're saying it. I mean, it's basically saying not all your rights are in here, you know, just because we said you have these specific rights doesn't mean those are your only rights because we probably forgot some. Madison was very smart to say that. I mean, he publicly acknowledged that he was probably leaving stuff out and he left the door open to protect them by the Constitution, even if they weren't originally in there. 
It's pretty clever. Admitting what you don't know is sometimes a really admirable thing. Oh, I wish more people would do that. All right, the 10th and final amendment of the Bill of Rights says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So this one is basically saying, if we didn't write it down here, we've left it to the states or the people to decide. Correct? This is one of the most powerful uh, parts of the Constitution. I feel like they really did a, a, a good final act on the Bill of Rights. It came to like a strong, <laughs> strong conclusion. <laughs> yeah, he had like a screenwriter arc to him. Um, but uh, this really points out to this something that I've talked about in my personal work for years, is that we spend so much time obsessing over federal politics and the federal government. We spend, it's almost now, now election cycles are basically four years long, right? I, they keep getting longer and longer. The presidency and presidential elections dominate the conversation. Congress has in some ways become a reality show of people just attacking each other on Twitter uh, and quote tweeting ad nauseum. But right here you have the constitution specifically saying that if it's not listed in here as a federal power, if it's not something that we say states can't do, it's up to the states and the people, which is quite literally an infinite number of things. So we spend all this time focusing on the federal government when the people who arguably have infinite power over our lives are the people who run our state, especially our state legislatures. State legislatures are all over the Constitution. We're seeing a real-time case of what's happening, especially when it comes to abortion, especially when it comes to guns, what happened in the Tennessee uh, legislature. I mean, this is where the real power centers of America are. They're scattered and they're fractured, but this is you know, states are the, are the ones with the real power. In many ways, the Constitution has punted power to the states on so many issues. And here it is, spelled out clear as day that states have almost infinite power in terms of the number of things they can legislate, whereas the Constitution is very specifically limited. Yeah, this is a big check on the federal government's power. And we really should be paying way more attention to the power of the state legislators because they have, as you said, infinite power. And we have to look no further than, like you said, what has been happening in Tennessee and how they were able to expel members that were duly elected because they didn't agree with what they did. That's a crazy amount of power. Now, the 1st through the 10th Amendment were ratified on December 15, 1791. The 11th Amendment was ratified in February 1795, and the 12th was ratified almost a decade later in June 1804. Now, the 11th Amendment says, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens subject to any foreign state. Do you want to just translate that for us? Sure. This is my least favorite amendment. If the ninth, if the ninth and the tenth were the were the good ones, you know, it's like there's the like 11th the sequel like, kind of yeah. The fourth book. The so yeah. Right. The sophomore slump, the, you know, the sequel doesn't match the original. Um, I think the 11th Amendment is basically the idea that you can't sue states in federal court without their consent, because then somebody from one state could sue another state. And then it goes, I mean, it basically could just take up a massive amount of uh, the federal government, specifically the court system's time and energy. And this is kind of what was happening. You had people who didn't live in a state suing another state over damages or things, property they lost during the revolution 
Revolutionary War, and it just kept spiraling and building. Um, so they put this amendment in there. The, the concept is something called sovereign immunity, the idea that you can't sue uh, a state basically without its consent. So there are situations where this does, where you can sue another state in, in federal court, but just, you know, sort of having the free reign to just run around suing different states, uh, they felt was uh, something that could uh, on, infringe on a, a state's right to self-government. Yeah, but this amendment is kind of reactionary. They didn't like what was happening, so they wrote a little amendment to stop it from happening. I mean, you can still sue your own state in federal court here, but they were basically trying to cut down on lawsuits. And I would say in some ways the 12th Amendment is also a bit reactionary, right? This is where we're going to end it, the 12th Amendment, before we get to what you call America 2.0, post-Civil War. I'm not going to read the entire 12th Amendment because it's extremely long and people can buy your book to read it or they can look it up on the internet. But the gist of the 12th Amendment is around choosing presidents and vice presidents. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Because I do think um, with the 12th Amendment being ratified in 1804, it was probably a reaction to the 1800 presidential election. And I think that's where that probably came from. Uh, you are 100% right. It was an exact <laughs> direct reaction to uh, what happened in 1800. So there, you know, 1800 being the uh, the fourth presidential election we had, um, it went off the rails. And what happened was you had, so the way that the system worked before is that whoever finished first in electoral votes became the president, whoever finished second became the vice president. And so people would still run as like, a, a running mate, but they would make sure that that person got like one vote less. So somebody, some elector messed up. They weren't supposed to cast an extra vote for Aaron Burr and they did. And so now he and Thomas Jefferson, instead of finishing with fewer electoral votes, and that was like the agreement, they were tied. So he saw an opportunity. He's like, well, suddenly I have a chance to become the president. Like, Maybe I don't want to be a running mate anymore. Maybe I want to be the president. And so it went to a, a runoff. And what happened is that Congress, uh, would, the House specifically, would vote to pick uh, the president. And you need a majority of states to, to vote to make you the president. And they vote as uh, not as individual like representatives. They vote as states. So like, you know, Vermont gets one vote. Uh, Maine gets one vote. They kept voting over and over, and they could not get somebody to get a majority of the votes. It took them 36 tries. It took several weeks. It was coming up on Inauguration Day. So the old Inauguration Day used to be March 4th. Um, by like mid-February, they still hadn't picked anybody. I mean, it was it was absolute chaos. Um, and then finally, Thomas Jefferson was able to uh, convince people. And actually, uh, Alexander Hamilton had a hand in convincing some of the um, uh, members of the House to vote and flip uh, and to spite his uh, nemesis, Burr. This was kind of touched on in Hamilton. They definitely got some things wrong, but it, obviously, if you've seen the musical Hamilton, they, they talk about this. It's true. Um, we could probably sing this. We could probably sing this <laughs> one. But essentially, you know, here you have an election between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr is a little bit like, oh, maybe I don't want to be vice president. And so they went head to head for 36 votes and they kept tying. And eventually, Maryland, I think, and Vermont flipped their votes to Jefferson, making him the president and uh, yes, Burr the vice president. Burr the and vice president. then they <laughs> and then they passed the 12th Amendment to be like, never again. And then they made rules around the president and the vice president and how it all works. Yeah, it was it was definitely a damage control situation. Um, and this is really the amendment, you know, obviously, uh, Article 2, which talks about the president, Article 2, Section 1 talks about the Electoral College. But this 
changed, not drastically, but it changed a lot of the ways that we choose presidents and vice presidents. And these are the rules that still exist for the Electoral College today. Yeah, <laughs> so true. I mean, I find the wording of this amendment particularly weird because I find the Electoral College particularly weird. But uh, but this is an important amendment for how we choose our presidents, even though how we pick our presidents and vice presidents today is not actually in the Constitution with the primaries and the generals, is it? No, it's not. It's not at all. Uh, okay. Well, this is where we're going to stop for today at the 12th Amendment, because after the 12th Amendment, America went 61 years without any amendments at all. But coming out of the Civil War, Congress and the states added three amendments in five years, granting several constitutional rights to African-Americans and former slaves. And then we added 12 more amendments from 1913 to 1992. So we're going to have to have you back to talk about those um, <laughs> in what you call America 2.0, but people only have a certain attention span. And although I want people to tune back in when you come back on, I also want them to buy your book. So even if it's just to read your brilliant paraphrasing of the Declaration of Independence, which actually just made me laugh out loud, I have to tell you, that rephrasing was brilliant. So I want to thank you for joining us today, Ben. As you pointed in your book, while it is true that the Constitution was originally written for just some of us, it belongs to all of us now. And we have the right to know what's in it if we're going to insist on changes or things that we want added to it. So we have to know where we started to know where we want to go. And I hope you'll come back again. And so we can go over the rest. I would love to come back. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. I just love it. Honestly, you guys have to buy this book. It's so good. So that was Ben Sheehan, author of OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say, whose book does us the great service of teaching us what we should have learned in school. There is also a children's version and a Spanish version because it's important that all of us know what our rights are, especially if we want the Constitution to be, as Jefferson said, a living document that changes as we do. Because why should future generations have to live under outdated principles of a time that is past? So if we decide to change something in the Constitution or fight to keep something in the Constitution, at the very least, we should know what's in the Constitution. And that is why Ben wrote this book. I want to thank Ben for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.